Let me tell y'all some good news. It is for freedom that Christ set us free. The problem is we keep wanting to go back to the old chains and our old way, but the reminder we just sang is that he's made you new. Here's some more good news. There is now no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? The problem is our minds and our hearts try to talk, 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 and remind us that no, 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 no. You're not good enough. You don't measure up. You're not new. It's the same old you. And we condemn ourselves. But Paul reminds us there's no more condemnation for those in Christ Jesus even for us who condemn Jesus. That's what we're talking about this evening. In this season of Lent, as Pastor Kathy, our pastor of spiritual formation, reminded us and shared another one of those incredible real-life, everyday stories from everyday people, we're in the season of Lent. This begins the third full week of the season of Lent. And we're in our third message in our series of Lent, called Together We, and we're exploring the ways along the story of Jesus and his suffering toward the cross. We're exploring the ways in which our world and we have a part to play. Because of some technical difficulties, our first sermon in the series that I preached uh, was not recorded, which is a real drag because the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of the known world uh, and you know that's not true because I preached it. Oh, okay. I'm not trying to condemn myself. Let's just call a spade a spade. But then last week, Jason preached so well on how together we deny Jesus. And he looked at Peter's three denials and then subsequently his three restorations. And tonight we look at the next scene, the next major scene in the drama as we head toward the cross, and I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew's in the second half, the second, uh, the last third of the Bible, and toward the end of that book, we're picking up the story as Jesus is on his way to the cross. As you're turning there, I'll remind you that the four key questions we're going to look at this evening are these. Where is Jesus in this story as he's headed to the cross? And then where is our world in the story? What are the ways our world condemns this king? And then we go down to the ground level, the street level, and we say, where are we in the story? And then finally, we want to close on a good note. We're going to see where our hope lies, even in condemnation. So I'm going to read a lengthy passage, and I'm going to get us back into this story. So if you'll join me there in verse 11. I might pause a moment or two to make sure we cover what needs covering as we get into our time tonight. Y'all doing okay? It's good to be God's people together. Let's hear Matthew's account in chapter 27. So meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. So pause and imagine Pilate, who we find out is this governor's name, in his chambers because he was a part of the Roman Empire that ruled the world of Jesus' day. 
And under them ruled a king named Herod, who was kind of a puppet king of the Jews. So when Pilate's asking him, are you the king of the Jews? He's kind of wondering, are you a threat to Herod? But then underneath Herod, you had these religious council called the Sanhedrin. Can y'all say Sanhedrin? Y'all seen them in the Bible movies and stories, and y'all know I can't go a Lent or Easter without referencing Jesus Christ Superstar and all its functified glory. So you see them in their garb, and they were like the moral majority on steroids. But within the temple, they had this ruling body of priests and elders that just made sure the busy temple in Jerusalem ran well, and they kept all of the Jewish religious folks in line. Those are those dudes you see there. So you've got the Rome connection with Pilate, who was a governor under the emperor. We'll talk about him in a minute. And then you got these chief priests and the elders. They were the ones that sent their temple police to go and arrest Jesus. They had a midnight trial. And then now they've drug him up the ranks to Pilate because they want to try to get Jesus killed. So as Pilate's questioning Jesus, they're still barking in the back of his ears. And we see in verse 13, then Pilate asked them, don't you hear the testimony that they're bringing against you? But again, Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. We'll talk about that in a minute. Verse 15, it was the governor's custom at the festival. That's the Passover. That's like Christmas for the Jewish folks. That's the big one. That's the liberation festival when God rescued his people from Egypt, an empire. And right under the nose of a new empire, they're going to celebrate the God who still acts in history to rescue and deliver them. So Pilate's little custom, a little token to these people, he kind of despises a little bit. I'll at least give him a prisoner. Merry Christmas. And at that time, they had a well-known prisoner. He's like a folk hero whose name was what? Y'all see that? It's not in all the manuscripts, but a lot of them include the very common name, Jesus Barabbas. So think of like a liberation, like riot, go get them, violent rebel. But when the crowd had gathered, now we're bringing in the masses and the people. Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? This Jesus, the rebel Jesus Barabbas, or Jesus who is called the Messiah, the anointed one, the king of the Jews? For Pilate knew that it was out of self-interest to protect their power and their clout that they had handed Jesus over to him. Verse 19, so while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Pause, 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 it's not in the rest of my outline. I gotta tell you this, shout out to the women in the Gospel of Matthew. Y'all, it's amazing, and I'm going to hear some head nods. I'm going to hear some head nods. I'm going to see some head nods. Y'all got some cricks in your neck if I can hear your head nods. But I'm going to hear some amens and see some head nods because if you follow the story thus far, 
In Matthew 26 and 27 and 28, do you know who says and does the true and right things? The women. Greta, that's you. She was telling me, like, come on, we need to talk more. Thank you, Toby. Just before all of this takes place, there is a woman that anointed Jesus and prepared him for burial. Just last week in Peter's denial, there were women saying, no, 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 I know you're a disciple. And they were cutting through all the silliness. And they said, no, 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 I know it. I know it. And then you have this woman who is not even a God-fearing follower who presumably had some kind of intuition. Y'all know about women's intuition. And she goes to her governor and said, you better back off of this. He's innocent. It's amazing. But it doesn't stop there because all the dudes have bailed and betrayed him. Guess who's at the foot of the cross? Spoiler alert in a few weeks when we get to Good Friday. It's the women right there, front and center, putting all their reputation and life on the line to be with the condemned man. And then when Jesus is raised from the dead, who are the first ones to lay his eye? eyes on the risen king. It's a woman. This may be a man's world in our world, but in the kingdom of heaven, women have a vital and significant role to play in speaking and doing truth, especially truth to power, regardless of status and all the roles we try to fit them in and shut them up. The Bible unequivocally, despite all of the culture surrounding it when it was written, is elevating them to their rightful place as image bearers and co-equals in God's kingdom. It's amazing. It's amazing. We can't miss it in the Easter story. The whole message and good news that Jesus was alive was first spoken on the lips of a woman. They couldn't give testimony in court, but their testimony changed the world. It's amazing. Well, Pilate doesn't care about her dream, because really, who likes to hear people's dreams, right? The chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas. You can just see him moving along saying, hey, 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 say Barabbas. Come on, man, let's do this. Let's do this. Remember how he launched that big revolt and he was a rebel and he was getting things done and he was wrecking shop and taking these Romans out? But not only to ask for Barabbas, they were raising him up and saying, we need to get this Jesus executed. So then Pilate interjects again in verse 21. He says, which of these two Jesuses do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. So then what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the anointed one of God? Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. So when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and he washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Now, before we think that Pilate is just some passive and innocent hero and sympathizer, we got to understand that sometimes our complicitness is just as 
convicting as our actual action. Sometimes saying and doing and absolving yourself when innocent people are being condemned is just as problematic to keep the system and the powers that be running. And you can make a big show of it like a lot of our politicians and those in power love to do, but ultimately there's still blood on his hands. He had every opportunity to choose to release him. But he punted his decision and let the whims of the masses condemn this innocent person. And here's what's crazy in verse 25. All the people answered, his blood is on us and our children, which is a way of saying, we'll own it. I got it. No worries. And I want you to not read that so much as a curse from generation to generation, but it is interesting that their children 30 years later are going to try to do a Jesus Barabbas thing and launch a revolt and try to rebel against Rome, and they're going to get slaughtered, and they're going to destroy God's temple where heaven and earth met. In 70 AD, just a generation later, they are going to pay and feel the consequence of choosing a rebel instead of a revolutionary who would give up his life to end the cycle of violence. Are you with me? They say, we know good and well what we're doing. We'll take the one that we can put in a box and understand. We know he gets things done. This Jesus of Nazareth, I have no category for him. So you go and get him out of here. We're sick of him being with the wrong people and doing all these wrong things that doesn't square with our boxes and our laws and our religion. You go kill him on the road, hang him up so that no one else can come after him. And say that God's kingdom has come to the least and the left out and the lonely. We'll own it. Kill him. So Pilate released Barabbas to them. They get what they wanted. But he had Jesus flogged. Right, I don't want anything to do with them. Let me wash my hands. Go ahead and flog him within an inch of his life. And then he handed him over to be crucified. This is the word of God for the people of God, and we say, thanks be to God. The challenge with familiar stories is we let them be too familiar, and we lose some of the shocking reality that we crucified God. Our story is headed toward a decision that invites our participation. It's impossible to read that and hear that and not think, who am I in the story? If I was in that crowd, how many of you show of hands were thinking, if I was in that crowd, I would say, no, 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 no. Let Jesus go, let Jesus go. Come on, let Jesus go, let Jesus go. Oh, no, okay, okay, and then what? Yeah, right. It invites our participation. Who are you? And it leads you to this choice. We're headed, barreling toward this decision. Jesus, who was in one night breaking bread and giving these final instructions to these men he had poured his whole life into, and he says, you're going to deny me, you're going to betray me. But here, we got to go, we got to go. Same night, goes to the garden, he's begging God, they're sleeping. Then all of a sudden, here comes the mob with their torches. They arrest him. They immediately arrest him. They take him into the temple courts of that Sanhedrin. Y'all say Sanhedrin. And they have this arraignment or this little trial because they got to get this done. 
And they start saying, all right, here's the problem. I heard this Jesus say he's going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. That is treason, y'all. He's going to bomb this thing. He's going to knock it down. He's a terrorist. What they missed was that for months Jesus had said, I'm where heaven and earth meets. And you can destroy this temple as he points to his chest. But God's going to raise it up in three days. No, 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 he's a terrorist. We got to get this guy killed. And then they said, hey, are you this Messiah? And here's where we find Jesus in our story toward condemnation. They ask him straight up, are you really who you say you are? And is your way of love and sacrifice really the way of life? But when they ask him straight up, are you God's king? Jesus said, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He references their most holy and, oh man, this is when God's king is going to come. Daniel chapter 7. Y'all write down Daniel chapter 7. He says, guess what? You just might find that I am who I say I am. And you just might find that everything I was doing was bringing God's kingdom on earth. But they couldn't handle it. They tore their clothes, and he says, He's spoken blasphemy, and blasphemy is a capital punishment. You can find it in our Bible. You can find it in Leviticus. You can find it right here. You blaspheme, you get stoned. Y'all remember, it's not just the Sanhedrin running the show. Who's above them? You've got Herod, and who's above him? You've got Pilate, and who's above him? The emperor. The only people that could send people to the electric chair or to their version, the cross, was the real people in charge. So they had to get their little thing to hang that charge on him so they could kick him up the line so that Pilate could do their dirty work. That's where Jesus is in the story. But the problem that nobody stops and asks is what if it's actually true? What if he really is who he says he is? What if God's Messiah looked less like one of those rebels and more like one of the revolutionaries inviting everybody we thought were out? Maybe they're actually in. And maybe every act of healing was actually doing war, not against Rome, but against the deeper forces that keep us broken and enslaved and hurt and hung up. What if it's really true? I got to tell you that if it's really true, you've got to rethink your whole assumptions about God and his activity in the world. Take yourself back to a place where you hadn't been at the neighborhood church, you hadn't grown up in Dallas in the 21st century, in the 20th century, and understand that there was a world that had it pretty squared away what God was like. God was angry, and God needed sacrifice. And you see the Jews come up and say, no, 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 God is one, and at his core of his being, he is slow to anger, he's merciful, he's abounding in love and compassion. But they're going against the grain of most of the world that says, no, there's a lot of gods and they're mostly ticked off and they like goat meat and lamb meat and they like it big and bloody and burnt up 
And all these tsunamis and floods and earthquakes, it's because he ain't bowling, he is mad. And then Jesus comes and John writes, the word of God became flesh and blood. Nobody's ever seen God, but Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth, he's made him known. And all of a sudden, we see the face of God in Jesus and he looks like us and he starts to talk like us and he starts to love people who are just as busted up like us. And we say, what if it's really true? Are you, are you with me? How revolutionary Jesus is, and that Jesus doesn't come to offer another way of being and living to the crowded buffet, but he wants to wipe the buffet clean and say, come to me, you who are burned out and busted up and weary and tired of doing it wrong, come to me and you'll find rest. My yoke is easy, my burden's light, walk with me, not for me. Do you see the difference? You've got to rethink your whole assumption about who God is. The second thing, if it's really true, you've got to rearrange your whole life to adopt his way and not yours. Because Jesus doesn't just become a good moral teacher. He says things like, love your enemy, forgive and bless those who curse you. So let me tell you why the Sanhedrin and the governor and the king don't adopt Jesus' way. And it's the same reason why Trump and all these other politicians for either party can't do it either. Because you can't make the Sermon on the Mount a platform to win an office. You can't raise money to forgive and bless and disarm your nuclear weapons. You can't adopt the Sermon on the Mount and spend a trillion dollars on defense and very little in comparison on education. You cannot really, if you are in power, you cannot really keep your power when Jesus asks for your whole life. And it's no wonder that in 2020, no matter who's the Democratic candidate, the people we hear in the Beatitudes aren't really the constituents. Because the meek and the tired and the peacemakers and the poor in spirit And the hungry, they don't really translate into more power and more influence for me. So lest you think that I'm anti-Trump, I'm anti-anybody who thinks that they know better than Jesus in his kingdom. I am blessed and thankful to be an American, but what The cross does, and we misread Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John. What the cross does is peel back the curtain long enough to see, hey, this whole shell game that we've been doing for millennia ain't going to fix it. We reshuffle the deck, and God is on the move, and God is at work, and God raises people up, and he brings them back down, and he's at work in our government. We pray for those who are in government. Hear me. We pray, we pray, we pray, we pray. That is our work. You can vote, but you got to pray. They didn't have a vote, but they prayed. And God gifts us the government to rein it in and to help us, but understand this. We have a dual citizenship, and our primary citizenship is a kingdom that's not of this world. So elsewhere, when Pilate asked him, where's your kingdom? He says, man, you don't even get it. 
My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, I would be the next one in a long line of people. Jesus Barabbas or Judah the Hammer for Hanukkah. A long line that's going to win it by force. He says, rather than be killed, I'm going to, excuse me, rather than to kill, I'm going to be killed. What if it's true? Man, you've got to rethink and you've got to rearrange your whole life. That's where our world is in this story. It's a critique on the power structures and systems that want to keep those people over there and those people over here and those people well-fed and these people out. Our world in this story thinks that it's the only story, but the truth is that history is God's story woven through our story and it's still being written towards God's happy ending. What's so fascinating is one of our ancient statements of what it means to be a Christian. It's called the Apostles' Creed. Who went to prayer school with Brian Zond? Part of the way he taught us to pray was to remind us of the bare minimum orthodox beliefs that Catholics and Protestants and everybody in between can say yes and amen to. And what's fascinating, by the way, y'all are going to hear a lot of Brian Zond, Lord willing, here in a little bit. I got some quotes from him that have been blowing me up. But Brian Zond has the Apostles' Creed in his prayer school. And one line that always kind of tripped me up was when we start to talk about Jesus, he said he suffered under Pontius Pilate. And I got to thinking, man, of all the things that could be said about our faith, of all the names that could be named of the faithful, that dude gets into the greatest hits. But I think what it shows us is that the word of God became flesh and entered into human history. And he entered in to a people that were sat upon and spat upon. And he entered into these existing power structures and even into death so that he could transform it from the inside out. So we meet this Pontius Pilate who gets top billing. And he's kind of like our world in the story that is unwilling to rethink and rearrange unwilling to believe that it could be true. And you got to know that he was not a fan of Jerusalem. He hated that he drew the short stick of the straw landing in Jerusalem. He wasn't there most of the time. But because, as I said, it was Passover, the great liberation festival, he showed up because crazy stuff happens at Passover. It's like Mardi Gras. You better be in New Orleans if you want to keep the peace. Even though I just drove through Mobile on spring break and they said, home of Mardi Gras. Who knew that? Dude, that's a New Orleans. Okay, Mark. Of course, Mark Sweet knows it. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. Okay, we get it. Thank you. Trivia man. He is, y'all need to go pub trivia with Mark Sweet, y'all. You got to be there. And he was also notorious for being stubborn when dealing with the Jewish folks. So it was really uncharacteristic for him to give him Barabbas. Usually he's that type of dude that would say, y'all want this? Psych. Here's the black licorice for Halloween. <laughs> he really doesn't care about the religious charges against Jesus. He doesn't care that he blasphemed, whatever. And honestly, there's a good bit of scholarship that even though that king of the Jews has a political dimension, he probably doesn't think he's real serious. Dude, because Caesar is Lord, not Jesus. This dude is 
hours away from being hung up on a wooden cross. He ain't Lord. But here's what he does care about. If he doesn't play this the right way, he could have another riot on his hands. And so when push comes to shove, and he's trying to get a feel for this Jesus, what did Jesus do? Did y'all remember in the lengthy passage we read? He didn't say anything. He says some stuff to the Sanhedrin, but he's not saying anything. How did Pilate feel or respond? Did y'all remember that? If you still got Matthew open? He was amazed. Because he's condemned rebels... He's crucified revolutionaries, and he's conspired with politicians, but I don't think he has any kind of box for a guy that's a hair's breadth away from going to the cross that is silent. And here's the practical tip for you tonight, I hope. And it's something we mentioned leading up to Lent. When stressful situations and stressful people come and mess up our mojo, I think we kind of have three responses One of them I talked about when we were talking about fasting was we revert back, right, to our old way. But really, I just want to drill down to two. I think it's the difference between reacting and responding. Reacting is your factory setting, right? Y'all get the toy on Christmas and he's got the button. It's the default. Reacting is the impulsive. You get your toes stomped and you go, whoa, ouch, right? Responding, however, is a more developed, sensitive, read the room, read the situation, take a breath, pause, and consider that there may be another move here. What is your default reaction to difficult situations? We are hardwired to fight or fly, to ditch it. What's your default? The first step is awareness. What's your reaction to difficult people? Mm. Fight or totally withdraw? Jesus could have reacted. The end game probably would have been the same, but consider the difference in impact it had within those rooms. Because Jesus responded. And I think Jesus was able to respond because he realized he was securely in the story that God was still writing. History bears out that Pontius Pilate and all these forces, they keep pushing him along and he's just a cog in the wheel and he's in the system. And man, it was hurtling down toward the conclusion, like we sang, when death thinks that it had won and darkness thought that heaven was defeated. But Jesus responds as one securely in the story that God's still writing. That's what we talked about in the first week. He said, look, all of this has to be fulfilled. I am swept along and God is not surprised. He is still with me. And so here's what I want you to understand. And here's what I'm trying to live this week. First of all, understand what's my default. And then second, would you try to remember in the moment... It's one thing to do it Saturday evening at the neighborhood church worship gathering. It's another thing when the difficult person or situation comes and steps on your toes. Remember in the moment that God is with you and God is at work even in this. When that person says this, what would it look like for you to pause, breathe, and say, I am who you say I am, not who they say I am? Here are some breath prayers that help me and some of the people in our church 
Abba, I belong to you. When your anxiety level is up to here and you are playing those tapes that keep wearing you down, Abba, I belong to you. Abba is that name that Jesus taught us to pray. It's an intimate father-papa relationship to the one who loves you more than you could ever ask or imagine. When that difficult situation hits, you don't see the way forward. Holy Spirit, breath of God, lead me. I love Pastor Kathy, our pastor of spiritual formation, cultivating these stories of Lent these last three weeks. And Sherry's today talking about not my will, but yours. Holy Spirit, breath of God, lead me. I love this. This is another identity one. I am one in whom Christ dwells. I am not what they say or what they think, even if I can't control it. I am one in whom Christ dwells. I'm free from the power and penalty of sin. I don't have to do what my body and my tongue thinks I ought to say or do. And then this classic one, also in prayer school, the Orthodox prayer, Jesus, Son of God, have mercy, taken from the Gospels. And I love this final one. Just as an offer for you, maybe one resonates, write it down. Try it out this week in your comings and goings. I am secure in God's unshakable kingdom. When my kingdom falters and falls, guess what? I am secure in his kingdom. The third key question is where are we in the story? Pilate has questioned him. Sanhedrin has questioned him. Then here comes the crowd and they get their say. Pilate punts his decision to the will of the crowd and he says, which one, right? We talked about this a moment ago, but just to reiterate, we have a choice between two Jesuses. We have Jesus Barabbas, who is the rebel, part of the violent riot, a folk hero who gets things done. And then we've got Jesus of Nazareth, a rabbi, not a rebel. He was starting a nonviolent movement that would start a revolution that we still feel and reverberate and is changing the world as we speak. He was a folk hero of his own, feeding and blessing and healing. And during the Passover festival, there was two very different ways of liberating a people. One was the violent way, one was the Jesus way. And the question for us is, one is like the Jesus we want, and one, I think, is the Jesus we need. And if we were the crowd tonight, I want you to zone in with me real quick I want you to think about this, and maybe you need to write this down and consider it this week. Who do we choose? Because if I'm really honest with you, I've got a Jesus that doesn't look like a lot of other people's Jesuses. Sometimes I say things in groups of pastors about a Jesus-looking God that says things like, you've heard it said in the Old Testament, but I say to you, and they're like, no, 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 your Jesus sounds wrong. I started to talk about a Jesus that can love us and embrace us and welcome us, even all the wrong kinds of people. And they said, no, 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 your Jesus sounds wrong. And it gives me pause and it makes me think, man, am I off base? I'm going to read some quotes at the end of the talk in just a moment. It's going to sound wrong to a lot of my brothers and sisters. But I'll tell you that when I graduated seminary almost 10 years ago, there was like 200 things that I was certain of. And 10 years down the line and Walking with a lot more people, there's about 20 things that I'm real certain of now. But let me tell you, of those 20, I am more deeply certain of them than I could have ever been. 
And one of those is that if you want to know what God looks like, he looks like Jesus. And I didn't make that up. I see it clear as day in Colossians 1. In Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, were pleased to dwell in bodily form in the one we know as Jesus of Nazareth. And he holds all things together. All things were created through him and for him. And in John 1, he says that the word of God who was with God and was God, the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, moved into the neighborhood. Even though we didn't see him, he's made him known. Hebrews 1 says, back then God spoke in prophets and in all of these different ways. But in these last days, he's spoken with one word and it's son. He says, Jesus, this son, is the radiance of God's glory. Y'all dig this. The shininess of God's shininess is Jesus. He's made him known. The light has dawned, and what we saw in a shadow that was always there in the Old Testament, the dawn has lifted over the horizon, and it paints the whole landscape, and we say, oh, maybe God wasn't mad at us. But what if it's true? Can we really believe it? Father Greg Boyle, who's given the last several decades of his life to ministering among the gang members in Los Angeles, who I told a story a few weeks back. He's kind of been blowing me up. He's got a great book called Tattoos on the Heart. And it's just a story collection of his work among these people that everybody's counted out. And he says in that book, God, I guess, is actually more expansive than every image we think even rhymes with God. How much greater, excuse the typo, How much greater is the God we have than the one we think we have? We choose Barabbas because we can figure him out and put him in a box. We have no category for the God who looks like Jesus who would go to the cross to save us from death and violence. Another Jesuit, it's a Catholic priest, Gerald O'Collins says this, While we look for him among priests, he is among sinners. While we look for him among the free, he is a prisoner. While we look for him in glory, he is bleeding on the cross. God looks like Jesus, and he's the Savior that we needed, even if it wasn't the one we wanted. So the crowd cries, crucify him. But that's not the last word. I want to close with our hope. And I want to read a selection from Brian Zahn's stunning book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, that we read as a leadership team at the Neighborhood Church. And I'm still recovering. And I have several lengthy quotes because he can say it better than I can in the time we have. So I want to read these quotes and I'm going to close with the story And I want to finish with the reminder. You with me? As we drill down to our hope. Brian Zond writes, On Good Friday, we see that our violent system of blame and ritual killing is so evil that it is capable of the murder of God. And once we see it, we can repent of it, be forgiven for it, and be freed from it. This is how the cross saves the world. 
He takes it a step further, looking at the drama presented to us in the Gospels, and he says, God did not kill Jesus. God's action on Good Friday was to surrender his beloved son to our system, and our system killed him. But on Easter Sunday, God overthrew our satanic verdict by raising Jesus from the dead. God did not kill Jesus. We did. What God did was to raise Jesus from the dead and in Christ give us a new way of organizing the world. Hear this. Instead of being organized around blame and ritual killing, the world is to now be organized around forgiveness and co-suffering love. Pause. The degree to which we are not doing that in our families and relationships and streets and worlds and social media is the degree to which we are not announcing the good news of the cross that is undone and leveled the playing field for all to come and be forgiven. Brian Zahn continues. The cross, I want you to please hear this carefully. The cross is not the place where God vents his wrath on Jesus. I want you to go and, and put in a search in Bible Gateway and, and, and type the word wrath and look at the New Testament occurrences. And you won't find wrath and cross in the same verse. We sing it in, in Christ alone. And on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. If you had one thing to say about the cross, make it scriptural. On the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. The blazing center for God so loved the world that he sent his son, his only son, Jesus, He gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have life. I, I'm, I feel like I'm walking on eggshells, but, but I want to say it's stronger even, but I just want to let that sit there, and I want you to imagine, could it be true? The cross is not the place where God vents his wrath on Jesus. The cross is the place where human fear and anger are absorbed into God's eternal love and recycled into the saving mercy of Christ. It's at the cross of Christ that the world and its violence are condemned so that the world at last might be saved by the love of God. The cross is not about the wrath of God finding a suitable sacrifice. The cross is about the love of God offering humanity a way out of the vicious cycle of producing endless victims. The cross of Christ is the end of sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 10. It's not the appeasement of some vengeful deity, but the supreme demonstration of God's everlasting love. Ho, oh, man. So where do we find God during the suffering of Christ? Do we find God in the high priest Caiaphas demanding a sacrificial scapegoat? Do we find God in Pontius Pilate requiring a punitive death to satisfy imperial justice? No. 
On Good Friday, we find God in Christ absorbing the sin of the world and responding with forgiveness. The cross is where God receives the most vicious blow of human sin, turns the other cheek, and forgives, Zond writes. And finally, Jesus didn't die on the cross to change God's mind about us. Jesus died on the cross to change our minds about God. It wasn't God who required the death of Jesus. It was humanity that cried, crucify him, crucify him. When the world says, crucify him, God says, forgive them. Here's where our hope begins. Who are we? We are the crowd demanding blood in an endless cycle of blame and scapegoating and shame and add to that racism and prejudice and violence and abuse. We're certain then that it, if it isn't them, it's me. And I'm certain that I'm not good enough. I'm certain that I can't be loved or forgiven I'm certain that God is angry, but it was in his love that even while we were dead, he sent Jesus. So I want you to know this. This is something that came up in our group that John Brunko was getting at. I want you to understand this, that even though you've condemned, he's forgiven, and you look to the cross. And there's no more condemnation from the one we condemned, only forgiveness and love. And it's the cross that calls you back to your true self as an image-bearing, beloved one. And I need you to know this is what John was getting at, and this is the Adam version of it. You can never outbelieve your belovedness. Oh, no, but look at the cross. Oh, no, but you don't understand. No, look at the cross. Oh, no, but I really blew it. No, look at the cross. Because Hebrews says it wasn't just that sin, it was once for all. Colossians says it wasn't just that sin, it was all the sins. We sinned all our sins into Jesus. He turned the other cheek and says, Father, forgive them when we said crucify. Hello? I know I'm preaching for a while, and I know that I'm really putting on the gas tonight, but I really need you to understand this if we're going to speak rightly about the cross this Lent. This is not something I've just come to lightly. It's something that's so much bigger and deeper than simply Jesus died for my sins so I can go to heaven. Did Jesus die for your sins? Shake your head yes. Are you going to live with him now and forever in heaven if you turn to him, believe in him? Yes. Shake your head yes. But understand that there is so much loaded into these stories that we do it such a disservice when we reduce it down to God who had to vent his anger and whip his child so that he would not be so mad at us. Do you hear me? Jesus told a story about a father. And the father had a son that said, I wish you were dead. Give me all your gifts and blessings and I'm going to go and blow it all. And so... The stories of the prodigal son, and you know it well, so I'll just skip to the end. The son realizes that he's really screwed up, and he comes home, and he's rehearsing his speech because he knows his father has got to be livid. But before he even can get a word out, he's wrapped up in the embrace of a father. We're prodigal sons and daughters who spite and spend every gift that we've been giving only to find a patient father extending his arms of welcome on the front porch of our heart's true home. 
He never once took his eyes off the horizon longing to see you. And the Father's action on the cross was that in Christ, he was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them if you would turn and see Jesus for who he is. You may have condemned him. You may have denied him. You may have betrayed him. But he has not condemned, denied, or betrayed you. Come to him. You screwed up this week. Come to him. Turn back to him. Repent and find a love that is better than you could ever ask or imagine. Repent and find acceptance that you won't believe you can get from anyone here. And it's because you can't. But we try our best to model the love that we know deep in our hearts that calls us beloved. We're the crowd that says crucify and know that he says forgive. And know that if you say, Jesus, I repent, he says, come on, I'm with you. You're forgiven, let's get up and sin no more. That's the message. That's our hope. We look to the cross and we see that there is no more condemnation for the one we condemned. Only forgiveness and love. Would you come to him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the blazing center of your goodness and your glory and your holiness and your righteousness and even in your wrath that is poured out on those who would deny and destroy and just bring hell on earth. Your wrath is poured out even as the inquenchable love that is melting away all that is not you. And we who turn to the cross find a love and forgiveness that withstands all of that. Because we've been forgiven and set free if we've said yes to your son, Jesus. Who said repeatedly, if you believe in the one who the Father has sent, you have eternal life. So Lord, we want to believe and help our unbelief. Help our unbelief that we are loved more than we could ask or imagine. That it may change our hearts and our minds toward ourselves and others. And that our actions would be those that extend like yours, even on the hard wood of the cross, inviting all of those within its saving embrace. We ask that you would breathe peace in our heart. We ask that we would be a forgiven community of forgiving sinners in our neighborhood. We ask, Lord, that the words that I said would be received for what they are. If they are true, that they would be received. If they are untrue or off base, Lord, would you be gracious and kind and just let them fall away? So, Lord, we just ask as we come to the table that we would be aware of your goodness to set a table for those who would condemn, betray, and deny you, knowing that we ourselves are not condemned, betrayed, and denied because of what you have done. It's in this strong name we pray, the name above every name, Jesus. Amen. Go with a tender and grateful heart, remembering that you may be the only gospel that your neighbor reads this week. So, in all you say and do, spread the grace of God, the love of Jesus, and the friendship of the Holy Spirit. You are blessed by the grace, love, and friendship of our Creator. And now you are commissioned to share it by being a blessing in this world. Amen. Go in peace.